People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon, welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Let me tell you about my guest this week, a thespian, surely, Malcolm Perkey. He has been around for a very long time in the world of theatre, an award-winning theatre director and playwright. He is also a screenplay writer, teacher and academic, and a founder member and director of Junction Avenue Theatre Company, one of South Africa's leading workshop theatre companies. He served as artistic director of the Market Theatre in Johannesburg from 2005 to 2013. And he's received many, many awards, done many, many productions. And his most recent production, Rose, written by Martin Sherman, has enjoyed a successful season at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg. The other important thing is that Malcolm has been involved with AFTA since 2013, first as Dean of the Johannesburg campus and then Dean Emeritus and currently as a researcher on syllabus development and writer-in-residence and is deeply involved in the newly emerged Creative Writing School. Malcolm, welcome. Welcome to Cape Town and welcome to Fine Music Radio. And thank you so very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Clearly, you have decided to to retire. Oh, good for you. (laughs) But you said, uh, why are you here? Are you on business? Bit of business, a bit of pleasure. I always try to do a little bit of business whenever I travel. And it just makes me feel legitimate. So I organized and attended a play reading of a new play. Uh, Professor David Atwell has written it, and uh, it's very interesting material, but it needs development. And I went off to Simonstown where we had a reading yesterday. I was very much hoping to be at the Baxter, and I'm, I, I think it's very tragic what we live through. Mm-hmm. These times are so shocking, actually. Yes. So to keep a to keep a healthy outlook on life is is difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, I'm I'm doing a couple of other meetings and st- and so on. Because it sounds very much as though your life has been, can I say, almost academic uh, in the theatre world. Well, no, I would like to rather think of myself as a as a person who made plays, directed plays, worked very hard at the market theatre to curate the programme. And I am, in that context, I am still a great believer in the dissemination of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, the word academic has got something dry about it. So it maybe, certainly has, so maybe yeah. as a, I mean, I know it's very fashionable these days to talk about public intellectuals. Oh. So, but I would hate to believe that my life was entirely and only academic. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I do get great pleasure out of teaching and sharing knowledge. One of the things I noticed as I was reading through your biography here is that there's nothing that you, you're not actually an actor, are you? You're a writer, director. You've never wanted to be on stage. Well, to be truthful, <laughs> yes. um, I was cured of the desire to be an actor when I studied in upstate New York. And they, I got involved in their repertory system where they had a theater in the community. And um, as part of the master's program, they staged productions, and I, I was in three out of the four of the season. And the very large and, I suppose, privilege I had was to to play the role of Dysart in Equus. Oh. But it cured me 
because I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning to try and learn the 90 pages. And the way they rehearsed at that stage was they had three weeks, which was a privilege instead of two weeks. Mm -hmm. And then when they would get to the monologues, Dysard's monologues, they'd say, okay, we'll do that later. So I never got a chance really to rehearse except by myself. So I tried to apply my then already fairly considerable directing knowledge to myself. Mm -hmm. But I decided it's not for me. Okay. Were you a fairly young man then? I was in my late 20s. Okay. Well, that's a young man, isn't it? Yes. How did you end up in New York? I guess I was privileged again to somehow find myself making plays very, very early on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had this brilliant teacher at Witz who taught Waiting for Godot. I was so taken and struck by that play that I wrote an answer as a 19-year-old. And it was staged at Witz and got some um, response. And actually, it ended up in, in another production in Britain at the student festival at the Royal Court upstairs. So I, I thought, my God, this is a good life. And so I thought, <laughs> I'll just make plays. And I, I left. I dropped out of university. I went to Britain, where my family originate from. And I found out that it's not so easy to be a writer. But I also saw such wonderful work that when I came back, I got a group of people to work together got back into the university, resumed studying, and created a play called The Fantastical History of a Useless Man, which <laughs> played in the Nunnery Theatre in Joburg with great success. And what it was, was it was it started off as a play about how we lived in violence, but we didn't understand it. It was all implicit. And then around, well, we were working on the play, and June 1976 arrived. And suddenly there was brutality and uprising and students getting shot and children and what have you. And then we had to decide, first of all, do we continue working in culture or not? Is culture, does culture have any use? Wow. But we decided to carry on and we opened the play in September. And the first half is a play about being a youngster born in 1950 in Johannesburg. I was born in 1951. Having the innocent experience of the privilege of being a white English-speaking South African male, and then suddenly coming to consciousness around the time of Sharpville. And then this, and it was all full of comedy. It was completely structured with comedy. Mm. And then the second half was, was kind of the crisis of, do you embrace violence to solve our South African problems or not? And that's been haunting me ever since, those kinds of questions. My goodness. Um, it, I know it sounds deep and big, but it was great stuff for theater. Of that's course the it would have been, yes, especially at that time. Yes, and because of what we were all going through, mm. we had an enormous audience because people were open yes, for was, about 10 minutes. It was cathartic, I presume, for the audience and for you and the actors. Yeah, it was, it was kind of made out of, a, out of innocence, yeah. and it had that young, innocent quality. Well, Malcolm, there's lots to talk about in your varied and colourful career, so I'm interested now in your choice of music. Love, Love Me Do, The Beatles, is your first choice. Is there a story to why this is on the list? The story is a little bit more sort of general in the sense that, you know, coming to consciousness as a young teenager when the Beatles were emerging, Mm -hmm. and, of course, the Rolling Stones and the Shadows and Cliff Richard and Elvis, that all of that music had an enormous influence on me. And I suppose I chose Love, Love Me Do because, and this is a sort of slightly uh, anxious-making confession, do we make art because we want to be loved?
Love, Love Me Do, with that, isn't that that sound you get from the Beatles from the 60s there? There's that special sort of sound that they made when they were recording that was unique to them, I think. I, by the way, I'm talking technically, the actual recording quality. My guest is Malcolm Perkey, an award-winning theatre director and playwright who's visiting Cape Town. You served a long time, Malcolm, at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg, 2005 to 2013. And remember, did you ever have anything to do with the Market Theatre in the earlier days when Barney Simon and those people were there, when it was doing such a lot of agitprop stuff and the police were there and all that? I have to say that I was a great admirer of Barney Simon, and I learned a huge amount from him. Mm-hmm. I also was witnessing all the emerging black theatre of the time, and being very, very moved by how they worked and what they did, I had a special relationship with Workshop 71. So the point is that um, after we made the Fantastical History, Manny Manum, who was busy founding the Market Theatre at that moment with Barney Simon, asked me if I would volunteer to be in their opening production of um, Marasad. And I said, of course. And I played a nun. And I went to Barney. I said, I'm playing a nun, but I've got a beard. <laughs> and Barney said, well, you'll be a bearded nun. <laughs> really? And what a my, lovely answer. Yes. And I have to say, so from 76, from mm. October 70, or from before, because I watched the first productions as they were opening. Mm. But from 76, I worked with them in many ways, and I was given my first professional production which we can talk about later in relation to my last choice of music. Okay. So we can push, push pause on that one. Okay, <laughs> keep I us think, in suspense for Yes, a while. but I think what, we, what I wanted to tell you a bit about is how I think I came to the notion of improvisation. I mean, it was in the air. Yes. Barney was doing it. Rob McLaren with Workshop 71 was doing it. Fugod had done some, then went into private writing, and then had enormous success with the island and says Bunzi. So it seemed to be a very powerful and generative procedure. Just, do you mind just explaining what you mean by improvisation, if I can just take you off the track? Sure. Briefly. So when we made the fantastical history of useless man, mm. there were 10 of us in the room and we would 
take a topic like uh, what was it like to prepare to go to Europe for your first European trip? And what would your parents give you? And then we would just stage five or six different versions of that. And my job as the senior, I suppose, the leading improviser and writer would be to decide which one to write up. Oh, okay. but, but the beauty of improvisation in a, first of all, in a multilingual society and a multicultural and multi-ethnic and all the complicated things about South Africa you can't even name, it allows multiple voices in the room. Mm. And that way, when we came to make Sophia Town, for example, we could give true and deep expression to the condition of the 50s in Sophia Town because in the room we had actors who actually lived there and had family that had been telling them stories for generations about it, and all of that came out in the workshop. So that was also uh, created in an improvisatory Absolutely. manner, Sophia Town. Really? Yes. That's in interesting. Fact, all of the work I've ever created since those two early plays mm-hmm. have been generated by improvisation. Right, right. What this does is it raises an interesting question about my family and music and improvisation. And I want to share with you a couple of crazy stories about my family. So first of all, my grandparents came from Eastern Europe and my parents, my father spoke with a Cockney accent all his life. My mother was a Londoner and they came out here in 1948. My father was part of a gypsy band. He played the accordion in Sergio Margot's gypsy band, Sergius Margot. And I mean, that's, there's a photograph that's absolutely extraordinary of this band. And I suppose they weren't really gypsies, but they came out here and they played in Cape Town for six months. Can you imagine a band of about 12, 14 people mm-hmm. playing in a dance place? I was born in 1951 in Johannesburg. And all my life, I had music around me. But it was odd kinds of music because my father and mother loved to have musical evenings. And my mother sang beautifully. And then all his buddies, the, 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 there was a butcher who played drums on the side, and sometimes he butchered the drums, but I, I, I didn't say that. But the point was that there was this music, and there were mm-hmm. funny songs, like my, my uncle wrote a song that starts, I want to be a senile delinquent, I want to be a problem grandpa. <laughs> so I was listening to all of this, and I'm 10 years old, and I'm learning guitar, but I'm not very good, and my father's job in life when he lost his job as a toy buyer for Greatermans in 1960 at Sharpville, he became a piano teacher and a guitar teacher and he taught me some guitar and I could do the basic chords. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories that is surely crazy is that he took me once on a gig and the gig was to go to a cemetery and set up an accordion and a violin and me sitting there with my guitar and it was the Gypsy King's funeral. Crazy. I mean, I I think I must have made it up, but I was there and I couldn't play properly and I didn't really understand. So my father was playing his accordion. The wind is blowing. The sheet music is flying and he's shouting the chords at me. C, F, G, seventh, C, F, A minor. And I'm trying to keep up. But Mm -hmm. I think that sort of tells you about some of the peculiar influences. Yes. And my father, my father loved to improvise. So he was kind of a jazz pianist and he was kind of a classical pianist. He could read music perfectly. But when he played something like the next piece of music, Mm. he would play his own version. Okay. And he would play his own notes. And from that, I learned a couple of complicated things around, do we have to honor the original correctly? Can we play with it? If we play with it, are we doing an injustice? So many difficult questions because actually making theater in the 70s and 80s in Johannesburg, 
on your neck is the weight of European history and American history of, of, of theater and culture. And our job was to absolutely disconnect from that, and sometimes to the point where we were rude about it. But me, I love my Shakespeare, and I love my Waiting for Godot, and my Pinter, and I did an enormously successful production of Travesties. So that balance is always something I've been struggling with. Mm-hmm. So how does the Rondo alla Turca come up now as our next piece of music? And the reason I've chosen that is because my father used to play, I'm going to say with love, a very damaged version of it. Thank you. 
Well, that's the Rondo alla Turca from one of Mozart's piano sonatas and played there by Jano Yandu, the original version. And it's the choice of my guest, Malcolm Perky, who, as you said, Malcolm, your father had his own version of that. And that's a whole new um, topic that we could discuss, and perhaps not now, because I have problems with crossover music. And yet that description of yours with the helicopters is very vivid and very thought-provoking. The crude one flies to the ceiling, the beautiful one just stays there and you look at it and admire it. So I suppose I should try and throw a little bit of light on that. <laughs> so my father was also loved toys mm-hmm. and loved to make things like taking the inside of a toilet roll and adding wings and an elastic band and making a, a helicopter that flew to the sky. Across the road, there was a man and we used to visit his house because I was friendly with his children. And he made the most beautiful things out of balsa wood. Mm-hmm. And that's that very thin paper and the glue. And so he would make a beautiful looking helicopter, but it couldn't fly. Yes. And so I suppose, again, I'm, what I'm trying to point to all the times are these tensions in a creative artist's life that pull one in different directions. Do you improvise and then make something unique, even if it's got the elements of crossover, which causes some distaste for some people? Do you make beautiful objects that don't have their full function? How do you get a balance between the crudity and the beauty? That's what I was trying to do. The artist dilemma, possibly. The artist dilemma. One of the things, just moving on from there now, one of the things I want to cover while you're here is your having founded the Junction Avenue Theatre Company. Now, what exactly was that or is that? Well, it was a company dedicated to creating new South African works, which critically reflected South African society. That was the mm-hmm. code we used. Oh, right. Um, okay. we, were, we believed that culture could influence change. We believed that we had a duty to influence change, remembering that we are in Johannesburg at the time of the Soweto uprising. We were not stupid. We also understood the limits of culture. And when people say to me, well, can culture cause change? And I say, well, it depends what you mean. If it's a 100,000 people singing at a funeral in the Eastern Cape and dancing a war dance, it can cause change. Mm-hmm. So those are also the debates that raged in our heads. But Junction Avenue Theatre Company was created to create the fantastical history of Useless Man. And um, the original company were basically uh, all students at the university, all white, because Bits was white at that point, mm-hmm. to all intents and purposes. And the five males and the five females married each other, which was also curious. In the team were people like Stephen Sack and Ruth Sack. Stevens became a cultural um, functionary in government in the transition or mm-hmm. beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Kentridge was there as Gosh. one of our great contributors, or clearly already showing his brilliance, mm-hmm. absolute brilliance. His wife was studying to be a, a specialist physician, but she participated in the theatre company in that period. Patrick Fitzgerald, who then went into exile and came back and ran the finances of Witz, even though he was a poet. I mean, <laughs> the, the mind boggles. Aristides yes. and Astrid von Kotze have also been greatly influential in culture and politics and, and academic work. But we also understood that we couldn't become a, we couldn't make any real impact unless we became a non-racial company. Mm-hmm. So in 70, 
eight, after the success of the fantastical history, we started on the trajectory. We made a play called Randlords and Rotgut based on Charles von Onsen's research. We made a play called Marabi based on Marabi dance, which was Madikwe de Kobe's first working class novel in South Africa. And then we set to work creating Safiatan uh, over six months. Mm-hmm. Because what we were doing was working our way through South African history. And we were dealing with, uh, you know, the turn of the century, and then we were dealing with the 30s. And when we decided to deal with the 50s, we didn't know what quite to do until we found a beautiful quote in Drum Magazine History, which tells the story of how the two famous black journalists, Nat Nakaza and Lucien Corsi, placed an advert in the Star newspaper asking for a Jewish girl to come and live with them. Apparently, for real. Apparently, a Jewish girl went and lived with them. Who she was, we decided not to find out. But it provided the hook for a clash of cultures in this production. She arrives. She knocks on the door. She says, hello, I'm here. And then the household says, well, who are you? What are you doing here? And then the journalist comes out and says, well, I invited her. And she settles in. And, of course, there's you know, love interest and complexity. And there's stories about the gangsters and the politicians. And then when they finally move in to destroy the suburb, Jake's the journalist and Ruth Golden, the Jewish girl, just decide they can't have a relationship after all. It's impossible. It's been, you know, till the war is over, to quote the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the play was created in six months of improvisation. <laughs> and my job was to turn the improvisations into playable text. We then rehearsed for six months. We opened at the market in February of 1986. And it just took off. It took off. Uh, Malcolm, it was incredible. It's had an incredible history, Sophia Tyne, hasn't it? As a play, it's been amazing because mm. actually… Also internationally. Well, we toured wonderful festivals. We were in the mm. Berlin Festival. We, were, we played in Rome, of all places. And we played in Frascati. And we played in, in Vienna. It was actually Zurich, a bigger pardon. And we also went to Frankfurt and Basel. But the point was that wherever we played, the great test, if we were playing to an audience where English wasn't the first language, was could the audience get the joke? And boy, oh boy, when we heard that laughter, we knew we were okay. <laughs> because you were doing it presumably in English. Yes, we were doing it as yeah. it was. We had yeah. no compromises. Of course, in Italy, it was very hard. We had these big pieces of paper trying to explain the story <laughs> as we went along. But, <laughs> but still, and we played in America, and we played in London. Is Sophia Town on anywhere at the moment? You know, about four years ago, something five years ago already. It was made a national set work for anybody studying English as what they used to call a second language. So you can imagine right across the country. So the sales have gone right up for which we're deeply grateful. But it also gave me an opportunity to have another look. I staged at the Market Theatre and then I did a second round at the Market Theatre and at the same year as a kind of crazy experiment I invited Aubrey Schabi to stage his version at the State Theatre in Pretoria. Wow. And I've given it to him, effectively. Oh, okay. And he's been doing it year in and year out mm-hmm. because there's such a wonderful audience waiting for it. Is it got a big cast so far? It's eight. Eight. And oh, they oh, sing okay. a cappella. Yes, that's right. And that's they, right. they – they, Who wrote the music? Improvised. Again. Or in honor of existing music. Mm-hmm. And uh, not sure where we are in our plan, but eventually we're going to play the famous 
Meadowlands, of course. Yes, that's coming up later. Okay. But at the moment, I see we've got Louis Armstrong lurking in the wings here from the Three Penny Opera, and this is upon your festival in Berlin. But you said that Brecht was a huge influence on you as well. I think I like to use the phrase a productive misreading of Brecht, <laughs> okay. which is code for I can do anything I like. Right. Okay. But, but, he, but there's no doubt that especially the theory treated with some care and not, you know, not wanting to embrace it all. And some of the plays I absolutely adore. And um, Thrapani Opera in particular, which I staged at Witz. And the reason I staged it at Witz, which was quite a thing for me, because I hadn't worked with an orchestra before. And, um, you know, and the singers I was casting weren't really singers. They were actors who were singing. Mm -hmm. But that's also in keeping with the Brechtian ideas. But the reason that I became interested at all is there we were in Berlin, West Berlin. And we're playing Sophia Town at the Berlin Festival. And when you arrive in Berlin as a company, the first thing they do is they pile you in combis. They don't take you to your hotel. They don't give you a cup of coffee. They take you to a platform next to the wall. And you look over into East Berlin. And they want to say, you know, we are the free part of Berlin. And there is the non-free part of Berlin. And I had in my time been, you know, somewhat of a socialist and therefore I was a bit skeptical about all this and um, the director of the festival was actually a very powerful woman who happened to be Italian which and and I said to her so you know Italian running a festival she says I can't work in Italy I have to work in a place where there's order Uh, so that was interesting in itself I said I want to go to I want to go to Brecht Theatre in in East Berlin she said why it's a museum I said I want to so she said okay we're in touch we're in contact even though the wall's there so she phoned them up, and they were doing Thrapani Opera. And so we went and made a pilgrimage as our company. We went through Checkpoint Charlie. We had them look at us, felt very South African, well, <laughs> if you know what course, I mean. Of course. And then we went to a restaurant where everybody looked like they were working on the South African railways. They were all dressed in those funny outfits, little black ties and all of that. And we ate what we thought were omelets, but they were, quote, Spanish omelets, with a whole pile of vegetables, fried eggs on top. <laughs> And then we made our way to the theater, and we watched this. And, I mean, I loved the fact that we were there, and I loved it. William Kentridge, who was already developing his own way in the world, said, "Mm, doesn't like the production. But it did make me think I can do my version of this. Right. So here we have Louis Armstrong singing Mac the Knife from the Threepenny Opera. Dig, man. There goes Mac the Knife. shark has pretty teeth, dear, and he shows them a pearly white, just a jackknife has back heat, dear, and he keeps it outside, when the shark bites with his teeth, dear, 
Scarlet billows start to spread Fancy gloves though, where's my heat dear? So there's not a trace mm, of red On the sidewalk, Sunday morning even Lies a body oozing light Someone sneaking around the corner Is there someone back tonight mm, From a tugboat by the river A cement bags drooping down Yes, the cement's just for the weight, dear Bet you Mac he's back in town Look at you, Louis Miller Disappeared, dear After drawing out his cash And Mac Heath spends like a sailor Did our boy do something rash Suki Tawdry Jenny Diver Lottie Lanyard Sweet Lucy Brown Oh, the line forms on the right, dears Now that Mackie's back in town Take it, Satch Great Louis Armstrong, Mac the Knife from the Threepenny Opera, and another choice of my guest, Malcolm Perky. Malcolm, at the beginning, I mean, there has we've, there's a lot to talk about, so we're not going to fit it all in. But at the beginning, I said you've been involved with AFTA since 2013, first as Dean and then Dean Emeritus, and you are currently a researcher on syllabus development and writer-in-residence. So tell me, this clearly is very important to you, as you said right at the beginning. So AFTA has been a very interesting experience because I worked in the public sector for many years, as in Wits for 20 years and then the market theater. And to work in an essentially private institution where the authority is very close to to who I was mm, mm. Uh, is very interesting in itself. Very different. And gosh. also after syllabus ideas are very, very particular. And I have to say that over the years I was there, we built the campus, we increase the numbers hugely and it is definitely a very important institution delivering a certain kind of education and still going strong obviously very much so and i was asked to work with others in the institution to develop a syllabus for a creative writing degree Mm -hmm. and we've been working on that for some years and this is the first year of its life Oh, it's so actually gone out to the students. Yes, doing we've, it. we've got a cohort of, you know, almost 15 students starting to do this. Mm-hmm. And we've been having a lovely time. Even COVID makes things very difficult. And I must say, we believe, and I believe very strongly, that anything that can help the next generation of writers, whether they're writing fiction or nonfiction, because there are many there are elements in both, mm-hmm. 
if we can help to develop the next kind of spirit and attitude, we'll be, we'll be doing an excellent thing. Gosh, absolutely. And how important is that? That is so important, isn't it? Well, you know, I think you asked me at the beginning, am I an academic? <laughs> but um, I, I think of myself um, much more as an educator in the largest and widest sense. Mm-hmm. No, that makes perfect sense. And this keeps you presumably very busy. But are you still writing yourself? You, are you still writing your own stuff? I'm actually working on some television. Uh-huh. And I've been trying very hard to imagine for my last years, whether they're <laughs> five, six, eight or ten, I don't know. That I really would love to make some, I suppose, what I want to call great television. Mm-hmm. And we've seen some great television. If you think about these limited series such as the Queen's Gambit, for example. Yes. yes. Or Unorthodox, two pieces that I've recently engaged with. I, I want to do my version in South Africa of something like that. <laughs> and have you ever worked with television before? Is this a first for you? Over the years, I've dabbled. Mm-hmm. Why Okay, so let me not say dabbled because that's a bad word. But So I went to the British National Film School as a British Council Fellow and a great honor. Mm-hmm. And I learned about the principles of screenwriting. And I was deeply involved in the development of hard copy with Anton Harbour and Jan Turner. Mm-hmm. And then I got to a point where I was about to start really working on it in terms of directing and developing the scripts properly and further. And then I got the job offer at the market. <laughs> And oh I was really torn. Yes. And most of my, my advisors said, you, you know, the market here is obvious. It's an obvious place for you. It's a, it's a great institution. It needs a bit of recovery. And mm-hmm. so I chose that. So at that moment, I, in a way, I resigned from my, my television directing career. Oh, but I've done work. I was going to say, at the market, you were there for a fairly long time, 2005 to 2013. Yeah. And from what I remember, because it was around about 2005 that I left Johannesburg, the market did go to a bit of a dip, and then it came back to life again, thanks well, to you. I, absolutely. I mean, I know it's hard <laughs> to celebrate uh, some of these things, but I can say with with pride mm-hmm. that we doubled the numbers in my time, right. and we doubled the income in my time. Mm-hmm. And that's on record, and you can see it from the you know. But the real point was that I was learning always from Manny Manum, Barney Simon. One of the principles that I learned from Manny is never have a dark night. Now, if you've got three theaters, I've, I, I made every effort to keep two of them available on any night. Mm-hmm. So people began to go back to the idea you go to the market, not to a particular play. And that was... There was a lovely restaurant there as well. At yes, the time. there was. I mean, they, we were in difficult times. Post yeah. 2010, I think, when all the money got spent, huh? Yeah. And yes. big stadia. Uh, yes. Yeah, so that's where the <laughs> crisis started. We're going to just pop back to Sophia Town now for a music break uh, because, and we mentioned earlier that you wanted to put something from Sophia Town, and you've chosen Medellin's. So the obvious point is. You did ask about how do we make the music. Well, Mm. often we make the music in improvisation. And uh, one or two of the members of the company were very good at capturing it and restoring it into order, creating the harmonies for a cappella and so on. But Meadowlands is a a classic. It was created first as a lament in 3-4 time. And actually finding out that even, we started when we did our version of it in the production Mm. in 3-4. And then we switched to 4-4. 
and then it became a big jive dance. Yeah. <laughs> so it was almost like, again, a metaphor for the condition. First, we have lament because things are so horrid and tough, but we will always overcome with liveliness, humor, dance, and energy. <laughs> Remarkable success, Sophia Town, Meadowlands there. And another choice of my guest, Malcolm Perky, who was from 2005 to 2013 the artistic director for the market. But am I right in saying it was 78 when your first play was put on at the market? Is that right? When I first directed the market. When you first directed at the market. Manny Manum had seen Fantastical History and he said, Mm -hmm. wow. There's some energy there. And he was a very good uh, person at that sort of level. And he said to me, can you direct a one-act play? And he gave me a few. There was going to be a late-night season. I read them. I didn't like them. So he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, there's this play by Stoppard, Travesties. He said, you can't do that. Everybody tells me it's unstageable. 
And if we remember, it's a play about the memoir or the memory of Henry Carr, who was a real person in Zurich at the time when Lenin, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin was there, James Joyce was there, Tristan Zara from Dada was there. And apparently Henry Carr staged the importance of being earnest. And James Joyce was involved. So Tom Stoppard, being the absolute master of theatrical games, Mm -hmm. brings them all together and forces them together in this extraordinary piece of work called Travesties. Mm -hmm. And I happened to have studied all these people almost out of my own passions. So at at university, we were busy trying to get to grips with James Joyce. I would studied Oscar Wilde for myself. We had worked on Tristan Zara for other things in the, in, the, in the Junction Avenue company. So Manny said, okay. And I staged it. I had the privilege of William Kentridge playing Tristan Zara, yeah. you know, who could act because it was such a kind of wild role. I had yeah. a lovely company. Young people, all because it's a play of set in the mind. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the piece that I'm going to ask that we close with is a piece of music that is quoted in the play. And Vladimir Ilyich Lenin has the most extraordinary thing to say about this piece of music, the Appassionata Second Movement. Does he say it in the play? Yes, in the play. In Travesties. In the play, Travesties. He's he's given the lines. Mm -hmm. And apparently Gorky captured these originally. And I'm going to read the quote to you if I may. Please do, from Lenin. Vladimir Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Lenin. Well, Gorky catching him. So who knows what's true here or not. So Lenin listens to the Appassionata and he says, I know the Appassionata inside out, and yet I'm willing to listen to it every day. It is wonderful, ethereal music. On hearing it. I proudly, maybe somewhat naively think, see, people are able to produce such marvels. He then winked, says Gorky, and added sadly, I'm often unable to listen to music. It gets on my nerves. I would like to stroke my fellow human beings and whisper sweet nothings in their ears for being able to produce such beautiful things in spite of the abominable hell they're living in. However, today... One shouldn't caress anybody, for people will only bite off your hand. Strike without pity, although theoretically we're against any kind of violence. Oh, it is, in fact, an infernally difficult task. Gosh, Malcolm, thanks for sharing that. And that's from Lenin, Vladimir Lenin. Well, if if Tom Stoppard is willing to put it in a play and risk his reputation, I'm willing to quote the version that I got from Gorky. Can we know whether it's true or not? Did he say such a thing? Is it possible? Many people have tried to exonerate him. Mm -hmm. I I, I spent my youth studying Marxisms and Leninisms. And I suppose I love the ironies of it all. And I love the way in which arts, culture, and politics has such a heady, complicated mix. Oh, that's a wonderful phrase. And we're going to end there, Malcolm, because now we've run out of time. But we're going to play the slow movement of Beethoven's Appassionata Sonata with Maurizio Pollini playing for us. And thank you for a fascinating chat, Malcolm. It's been good to have you come and visit us again down in Cape Town. It's been an enormous pleasure to be here and a great privilege. Thank you. That was Malcolm Perky. This is Beethoven.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.